0: It is indeed a marvelous deliverance to be snatched from the verge of hell and assured of everlasting life. What a tumult of filling must it create! But notwithstanding this, it frequently happens that in the first discoveries of the plan of salvation, the soul loses sight of its own interests and is completely occupied in contemplating and admiring the wisdom, love, and justice of God as exhibited in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, the believer, when these spiritual discoveries are afforded, thinks nothing of the nature of those acts which he is exercising, and it may not be till long afterwards that he recognizes these outgoings of soul to be true love to the Savior. There are two affections distinct from each other in their objects, which are included under the term love. The one terminates on the goodness or moral excellence of its object and varies according to the particular view, at any time enjoyed, of the divine attributes. This comprehends all pious affections and emotions arising from the contemplation of the perfections of God, and some of them, such as reverence and humility, would not fall under the name of love when taken in a strict sense, but when used as a general term for our whole obedience, it must comprehend them all. This may, for convenience, be called the love of complacency, in which the rational soul delights in the character of God as revealed in His Word. The other affection called love is not the character of the person beloved for its object, but His happiness. It may be intensely exercised toward those in whose moral qualities there can be no complacency, and is called the love of benevolence. God's love to sinners is of this kind. This is the kind of love which Christians are bound to exercise to all men in the world, even to those that hate and persecute them. Though the love of benevolence may exist without the love of complacency, yet the converse cannot be asserted. No one ever felt love to the character of another without desiring his happiness. Before conversion, the soul is sordidly selfish. But no sooner does this change take place than the heart begins to be enlarged with an expansive benevolence. The whole world is embraced in its charity. Goodwill to man is a remarkable characteristic of the new creature. And this intense desire for the salvation of her fellow men An ardent wish that they may all become interested in that Savior whom we have found to be so precious is a true source of the missionary spirit, and is the foundation often of laborious and long-continued exertions to prepare for the holy ministry, and prompts and inclines delicate females to consent to leave all the endearments of home for arduous labor in a foreign and sometimes a savage land. But however live the affection of love in the exercises of the real Christian, he never can lose sight of his own unworthiness. Indeed, the brighter his discoveries of the divine glory, and the stronger his love, the deeper are his views of the turpitude of sin. The more he is elevated in affection and assured hope, the deeper is he depressed in humility and self-abasement. His penitential feelings, from the nature of the case, keep pace with his love and joy. And when his tears flow in copious showers, he would be at a loss to tell whether he was weeping for joy or for sorrow. He might say, for both. For in these pious exercises, these opposite emotions sweetly mingle their streams. And so delightful is this mingling of affections, naturally opposite, that the person could hardly be persuaded that the sweet would be as agreeable without as with the bitter. When hours spent under the cross, while the soul is thus elevated, thus abased, thus joyful and thus sorrowful is better than a thousand of earthly does life observe bunyan does not make the burden of christian fall off instantly on his entering into the straight gate but when as he traveled he came in sight of the cross then in a moment these cords which had bound it to his back and which none could loose were burst asunder and his burden fell off and never was fastened on him again although he lay so long in the prison of giant despair. The feelings of a renewed heart are never afterwards the same as under legal conviction. There are scenes in the experience of the lively Christian of which the wise men of the world never dream, and which, if they were told of them, they would not believe. And These things, while they are hidden from the wise and prudent, are revealed in the babes. The secret of the Lord is with them that fear Him. The soul which hath thus returned from its wanderings To its bishop and shepherd feels under the strongest obligations to live for God, to deny itself, to forsake the world, to do anything, be anything, or suffer anything, which may be for the honor of its divine master. Hence, a new life commences, a new spirit is manifested, and the new man, in spite of all his remaining ignorance and imperfection, gives lucid evidence of all who carefully observe him, that he has been with Jesus." And has been baptized with the Holy Ghost, and the more frequently these views and exercises are reiterated, the more spiritual and heavenly is his conversation. This is a light which cannot be hid, and which ought to shine more and more unto the perfect day. Hear then the exhortation of the apostle Jude, but ye beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Chapter 7 A Remarkable Conversion of a Blind Infidel from Hearing the Bible Read Inglis had weak eyes from an early age, but his blindness came on him suddenly. Finding no relief from the physicians where he resided, he left Virginia for Philadelphia, and upon the application of his friends was received, with his servant, into my house as a boarder. I found him a man of strong passions, impatient under sufferings, and not willing to submit to restraints of any kind. When the physicians of the city were consulted, they gave his friends no hope of the recovery of his eyesight. Him they soothed with the promise of a further consideration of his case. A few weeks after, he came to my house. A gentleman, very much celebrated as an aculist, came to the city. Inglis applied to him for advice. He did not tell him that his was an incurable case, but said that he would see him again. He bore this very impatiently, observing to me that life was now becoming an intolerable burden, but that he had this consolation that he had it in his power at any time to lay it down. It was but to increase a quantity of opium, he was in the habit of taking opium, and all his sufferings would be at an end, and that, after another visit from the doctor, if he found there was no hope of his recovering his sight, he would certainly take that method of putting an end to his existence. I remonstrated with him on the impropriety of his behavior, alleging that he had no more right to take away his own life than he had to take away the life of his neighbor, asking him if he had considered the consequences of rushing uncalled into the presence of his Maker. His answer was that he had considered it well, and he advocated his opinion on this principle, that he was by a merciful Creator placed on this earth to enjoy the good things of this life, as far as it was in his power honestly to obtain them, that the duties required of him were to be as useful to his friends in particular, and society at large, as his circumstances would admit of, that having lost his sight, he should no longer enjoy any happiness here, would become a burden to his friends, and could be of no use in the world. He alleged that the purposes for which life was given to him were now defeated. Of course there would be no impropriety in laying it down. I made some remarks on what he had advanced as his sentiments, and, to strengthen what I said, quoted some passages of Scripture. These he treated in a very light manner, spoke of the Bible as the work of men, contrived to keep the vulgar in awe, with many other observations too common with men of deistical principles. I then inquired if he had ever read the Bible. He frankly acknowledged that he had not since he left school. Upon asking him if he had not read the works of those that were opposed to the Scriptures, he admitted that he had. If so, I observed, he must have formed his opinions from the avowed enemies of that sacred book. Was this a fair method of proceeding? I said that I thought he would not act thus on any other occasion. This book you acknowledge you have not read since you were a boy. All that you know about it you have from the enemies of the Christian religion." Taking these things into consideration, I hope you will no more speak against the Bible, as it is a book that you have never read since you were capable of forming a judgment of its contents. He apologized in a handsome manner for what he had said, acknowledged that he was wrong in speaking as he had done, and expressed a wish to have it read to him. This I declined, and gave my reasons for so doing, which were that a man so prejudiced as he appeared to be, was not likely to profit by the reading of the Bible, that he would most probably cavil at, and perhaps ridicule it, in so doing, he would wound my feelings without benefiting himself, for I considered it as the word of God, and my hopes of eternal salvation rested on the truths contained in it. He then assured me on the word of a gentleman, that if I would read it to him, whatever his opinions might be, he would carefully avoid saying anything that might have a tendency to wound my feelings, or give offense in the smallest degree. There was an earnestness in his manner of addressing me, which satisfied my mind that he was sincerely desirous to have the scriptures read to him, and the next day was fixed upon for that purpose." It appeared to me that he waited impatiently for the arrival of the appointed hour, for no sooner did the time come than he sent for me. Before we began, I observed to him that, as in the New Testament he would find the fulfillment of the promises of the Savior, I would point out those promises as they should occur in reading the Old Testament, which it would be necessary for him to take notice of as we proceeded. Beginning then with the first chapter of Genesis, before we had gone through the chapter, he stopped me to express his admiration of the language. Quote, It was sublime beyond anything he had ever read, end quote. While I was reading, he was all attention, and when the time arrived when I was under the necessity of leaving off, it was with regret that he observed that I had finished, putting me in mind at the same time of my promise to attend to him on the next day. I think it was on the second day of my reading to him that he cried out, What a wretch am I to have spoken against such a book? A book that I knew nothing of, having never given it an attentive perusal. I went on for a few days, reading to him according to the plan laid down, which was one hour every day, when the distress of his mind greatly increased. There was now no more said about a second visit to the doctor, no complaints, no murmurings on account of the loss of sight he now saw the hand of God in the dispensation of his providence, and would acknowledge that it was less, far less, than he deserved. My family duties prevented me from being with him as much as I wished. I now called in the aid of some of my religious friends, among whom was Joseph Eastburn, to converse with him and to assist in reading to him. Several religious books were now occasionally read to him, among which were Boston's Fourfold State, Newton's works, Hervey's dialogues, and so on. The descriptive parts of the last-mentioned author were at his request passed over, except where it more fully served to explain the doctrines of free grace, a subject to him of the deepest interest. Though totally deprived of sight and unaccustomed to go out, he now neglected no opportunity of hearing the word of God, attending sermons on Sabbath, and weakly societies as often as was in his power. As might be expected, his natural disposition, sometimes getting the better of the good resolutions he had formed, would betray him into a fretfulness that was troublesome to his friends, and occasioned much uneasiness to himself. On such occasions I have heard him lament deeply over his sinful nature, accusing himself of ingratitude to that God who had mercifully stopped him in his career of vice by depriving him of the light of day, and enlightening his darkened mind, and had enabled him to understand the truths contained in his blessed word. I do not recollect how long he stayed with me, but it was something less than a year, when his friends thought it would be best to remove him to the country, and boarding was obtained for him in the neighborhood of the Reverend Dr. Tennant of Abington. Dr. Tennant, in the memoir already quoted, after mentioning some circumstances which have been given in detail in a former page, goes on to say, "...it pleased God by these means to bring him to very serious and deep impressions of his moral character, and to constrain him, after some time, to attempt to pray. This change was effected in the gentleness, kindness, and tenderness of infinite mercy," and without those horrors which often precede the conversion of high-handed and daring sinners. In his case, all was mercy, without extraordinary terror. He was embraced in the arms of redeeming love, and delivered from the fiery pit without beholding its awful flames. In his first attempt to supplicate the deity, he was principally affected with a sense of the baseness of his conduct, and his vile ingratitude for the mercies bestowed. And this exercise was accompanied with an involuntary flow of tears and a desire to call God His Father, and afterwards to mention the blessed name of Jesus, the Savior. Probably this was the beginning of His new birth, and the hour of His conversion, which was not long afterwards confirmed by a remarkable vision of two books, with a glorious light shining in the midst of them, as he was lying in his bed, which he apprehended to be the old and new testaments of the living God, presenting to and impressing on his mind his sacred declaration. But without a voice, this is the way, and filling his soul at the same time with inexpressible joy. End quote. What is here related is no doubt strictly true, but there is no propriety in calling it a vision, since it can easily be accounted for by a vivid impression on the imagination. A vision is something supernatural seen with the bodily eyes, but this man was totally blind. The object so clearly discerned must then have been from impressions on the imagination. But in saying this, it is not intended to deny that the cause was the Spirit of God. This divine agent can and does produce vivid impressions on the imagination, which have so much the appearance of external realities, that many are persuaded that they do see and hear what takes place only in their mind. In the year 1790, Inglis was removed to Abington, and became a boarder in the house of Dr. William N. Tennant, and soon afterwards was admitted to the communion of the church in that place, with which he has walked steadfastly in the faith ever since, Exemplifying in a striking and high degree The power of God's grace in the new creation From the beginning of his turn to God There was abundant proof that old things had passed away And that all things had become new Before a blasphemer But now a worshiper of the true God Before a drunkard and a sabbath breaker Unclean, a ridiculer of holy things And indulging habitually in all ungodliness and wickedness led captive by the prince of the power of the air, who rules in the children of disobedience, but now freed from his bonds and made by sovereign grace to rejoice in the liberty of the gospel. Before, a hater of good men and good things, but now a lover of both. He was made to hunger and thirst after righteousness, after the bread of life, after the knowledge of his will, and seemed only to be happy when he had a glimpse of his glory." For more than a year after his conversion, he could not bear to hear any other book read to him than the Holy Scriptures and the most practical authors on religion. He shunned all political conversation, the reading of newspapers, and whatever might divert his thoughts from holy meditations and a further knowledge of his Redeemer. Whilst residing in his first permanent lodgings in the country, it may not be improper to mention a second remarkable vision which he had. Walking in the garden one day, as he usually did for sacred meditation, he was suddenly arrested and overcome with a most affecting view of his Savior, as suspended on the cross and bearing his very sins. In this vision of redeeming love, he was so lost that he knew not where he was, overwhelmed with unutterable joy and the most affecting gratitude for the discharge of the immense debt which he owed to the justice of a holy God." the impressions then made are still kept in strong remembrance. How long he was in this state he knew not, but was finally conducted to the house after having called for a guide, full of joy and gladness, a second remarkable proof of his interest in gospel redemption. A Dream of John Fletcher There are many professors of religion in our country who... If they should peruse this work, would imagine a great defect in the account given of a sinner's conversion, because nothing has been said about dreams and visions or voices and lights of a supernatural kind. During the various religious excitements, which extended over the southern states, under the preaching of different denominations, there was mingled with the good influence by which sinners were converted and reformed, no small degree of enthusiasm, which led the people to seek and expect extraordinary revelations which were supposed to be granted in dreams or visions. Indeed, at one time, the leaders in a very general excitement which occurred in Virginia about the commencement of the Revolutionary War, were impressed with the idea that they possessed precisely the same gifts and powers which had been bestowed upon the Apostles. And this enthusiastic idea would have spread widely if they had not failed in some private attempts to work miracles. But the opinion that certain persons had an extraordinary call from God to preach, and that they needed neither learning nor study to enable them to preach the gospel, continued to prevail for a long time. And this species of enthusiasm is not entirely passed away even to this day. Such preachers were much in the habit of declaiming in every sermon against letter-learned and college-bred ministers, and they seldom failed to inform their hearers that they had selected the subject of discourse after entering the pulpit, and some of them even gloried that they had never learned to read, as they believed that all learning interfered with the inspiration of the Spirit, which they were confident that they possessed. While this notion of an extraordinary call and immediate inspiration was common, it is not surprising that the people should have entertained wild opinions respecting the nature of conversion. As it was customary to give the narratives of religious experience in public, not only in the presence of the church, but of a promiscuous assembly, there was a strong temptation to tell an extraordinary story, and the more miraculous it was, the higher evidence it was supposed to afford of being the work of God." Well, the narrator would just like to say that, oh, that Alexander knew of the charismatic movement in the twentieth century. But this book was written approximately 1840. But I quote, "...and the more miraculous it was, the higher evidence it was supposed to afford of being the work of God concerning the genuineness of which the subject never expressed a doubt. Seldom was a narrative of experience heard which did not contain something supernatural." such as a remarkable prophetic dream, an open vision, a sudden and brilliant light shining around as in the case of Paul, or an audible voice, calling them by name, or uttering some text of scripture, or some other encouraging words. Sometimes, however, the cause of experimental religion was sadly dishonored by the ludicrous stories of poor, ignorant people, especially the unlettered slaves. For this religious concern seized upon them with mighty force, and many of them, I doubt not, were savingly converted. The philosophy of dreams is very little understood, and it is not our purpose to entertain or perplex the reader with any theories on the subject. Dreams have, by some, been divided into natural, divine, and diabolical. The wise man says a dream cometh through the multitude of business. Most dreams are undoubtedly the effect of the previous state of the mind, and of the peculiar circumstances and state of the body at the time. Most persons find their thoughts in sleep, occupied with those things which gave them concern when awake, and every cause which disorders the stomach or nerves gives a character to our dreams. Most persons have experienced the distress of feverish dreams. But there are sometimes remarkable dreams which leave on the mind a strong impression that they have a meaning and portend coming events. And that there have been dreams of this description we learn from the authority of the Bible. And these prophetic dreams were not confined to the servants of God as we learn from the instances of the butler and baker in the prison of Pharaoh and from the remarkable dream of Pharaoh himself. All these must have proceeded from some supernatural influence, as, when interpreted by Joseph, they clearly predicted future events of which the person's dream had not the least knowledge. So, Nebuchadnezzar's dream contained a symbolical representation of future events of great importance, which, however, neither he nor his wise men understood, but which was interpreted by Daniel by divine inspiration." Why God so frequently made His communications to His servants by dreams is not easily explained. Perhaps the mind is better prepared for such revelations when external objects are entirely excluded, or it might have been to obviate that terror and perturbation to which all men were subject when an angel or spirit appeared to them. Whether God ever now communicates anything by dreams is much disputed. Many, no doubt, deceive themselves by fancying that their dreams are supernatural, and some have been sadly deluded by trusting to dreams, and certainly people ought not to be encouraged to look for revelations in dreams. But there is nothing inconsistent with reason or scripture in supposing that, on some occasions, certain communications intended for the warning or safety of the individual himself, or of others, may be made in dreams." To doubt of this is to run counter to a vast body of testimony in every age. And if ideas received in dreams produce a salutary effect in rendering the careless serious or the sorrowful comfortable in a view of divine truth, very well. Such dreams may be considered providential, if not divine. But if any are led by dreams to pursue a course repugnant to the dictates of common sense or the precepts of Scripture, such dreams may rightly be considered diabolical. Some persons have supposed that they experience a change of mind while asleep. They have gone to rest with a heart unsubdued and unconverted, and their first waking thoughts have been of faith and love. Some have sunk to sleep, worn down with distress, and in their sleep have received comfort, as they suppose, from a believing view of Christ. Such changes are Suspicious. But if they are proved to be genuine by the future life of the person, we should admit the possibility of God's given a new heart, just as he does to the infant. Or truth may be as distinctly impressed on persons' minds in sleep as when they are awake. Some persons appear to have their faculties in more vigorous exercise in some kinds of sleep than when their senses are all exercised. John Fletcher of Madeley, 1729-1785, to 1785, relates, relates that he had a dream of the judgment day, the effect of which was a deep and abiding impression of eternal things on his mind. As the scene was vividly painted on his imagination, and the representation of truth was as distinct and coherent as if he had been awake, it might be gratifying to the reader to have the account of it set before him. Fletcher had been variously exercised about religion before this. Quote, I was, says he, in this situation, when a dream, in which I am obliged to acknowledge the hand of God, roused me from my security. On a sudden the heavens were darkened and clouds rolled along in terrific majesty, and a thundering voice like a trumpet, which penetrated to the bowels of the earth, exclaimed, Arise ye dead and come out of your graves! Instantly, the earth and the sea gave up the dead which they contained, and the universe was crowded with living people who appeared to come out of their grave by millions. But what a difference among them! Some convulsed with despair, endeavored in vain to hide themselves in their tombs, and cried to the hills to fall on them, and the mountains to cover them from the face of the holy judge. Others rose with seraphic wings above the earth, which had been the theater of their conflicts and their victory. Serenity was painted on their countenances. Joy sparkled in their eyes, and dignity was impressed on every feature. My astonishment and terror were redoubled when I perceived myself raised up with this innumerable multitude into the vast regions of the air, from which my affrighted eyes beheld this globe consumed by the flames, the heavens on fire, and the dissolving elements ready to pass away. But what did I feel when I beheld the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven, in all the splendor of His glory, crowned with the charms of His mercy? and surrounded with the terrors of his justice. Ten thousand thousands went before him, and millions pressed upon his footsteps. All nature was silent. The wicked were condemned, and the sentence was pronounced. The air gave way under the feet of those who surrounded me. A yawning gulf received them and closed upon them. At the same time, he that sat upon the throne exclaimed, Come! ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Happy children of God, I cried, you are exalted in triumph with your Redeemer, and my dazzled eyes will soon lose sight of you in the blaze of light which surrounds you. Wretched that I am, what words could express the horrors of my situation? A fixed and severe look from the judge as he departed pierced me to the heart. And my anguish and confusion were extreme when a brilliant personage, dispatched from the celestial host, thus addressed me Slothful servant, what dost thou here? Dost thou presume to follow the Son of God, when, whom thou hast served merely with thy lips, while thy heart was far from him? Show me the seal of thy salvation and the earnest of thy redemption. Examine thy heart and see if thou canst discover there a real love to God and a living faith in His Son. Ask thy conscience, what were the motives of thy pretended good works? Dost thou not see that pride and self-love were the source of them? Dost thou not see that the fear of hell rather than the fear of offending God restrained thee from sin? After these words he paused and regarded me with a compassionate air. Seemed to await my reply, but conviction and terror closed my mouth. And he thus resumed his discourse Withhold no longer from God the glory which is due to Him. Turn to Him with all thy heart and become a new creature. Watch and pray was the command of the Son of God. But instead of in having done this by working out thy salvation with fear and trembling, thou hast slept the sleep of security this very moment dost thou not sleep in the state of lethargy of spiritual death from which the word of God and the exhortations of his servants and the strivings of his grace have not been sufficient to deliver thee time is swallowed up in eternity there is no place for repentance thou hast obstinately refused to glorify God's mercy in Christ Jesus go then slothful servant and glorify his justice Having uttered these words, he disappeared, and at the same time the air gave way under my feet. The abyss began to open. Dreadful wellings assailed my ears, and a whirlwind of smoke surrounded me. The agitation of my mind and body awoke me, the horror of which nothing can equal, and the mere recollection of which still makes me tremble. Oh, how happy I felt on awakening to find that I was still in the land of mercy and the day of salvation. Oh, my God, I cried. Grant that this dream may continually influence my sentiments and my conduct. May it prove a powerful stimulus to excite me to prepare continually for the coming of my great Master." By this dream Fletcher was convinced that he had been indulging vain hopes, and that his mind was still and renewed. His conviction of this truth, however, did not rest entirely nor chiefly on what had been told him in his dream, but he now set to work in sober earnest to examine his religious principles and motives by the scriptures. And the more he examined, the more fully was he convinced that he was yet in an unconverted state. From this time he began with all earnestness to seek for justification through the blood of Christ, and never rested until he found peace with God by a living faith in the truth and promises of God. Thoughts on Religious Experience by Archibald Alexander Chapter 8 Religious Conversation Stress laid by some on the knowledge of the time and place of conversion. It is often a question among serious people whether every person who is a real Christian knows not only that he is such, but the time and place of his conversion. This subject has already been partially discussed in these essays, but demands a more particular and extended consideration. It is well known to all that the Christian denominations which exist in this country differ from one another in their views of various doctrines and rites of religion, But the fact is not so well known that the religious experience of the individuals of the several denominations is as various as their doctrines and external forms of worship. To those who view these things at a distance, and superficially, all religious people appear alike, and many, when they hear of a number converted, take it for granted that they have all passed through the same train of exercises to whatever sect they belong There are some serious people, well indoctrinated in the scriptures, who, while they hold a sound theory respecting the nature of regeneration, never speak of their own religious exercises, believing that such exposures are not for edification, as they tend to foster spiritual pride and vain glory, and afford a temptation to hypocrisy which is commonly too strong for the deceitful heart. Among such professors you hear nothing of conviction and conversion, And when any of this class fall into a distressing case of conscience which urges them to seek spiritual counsel, they always propose a case in the third person. They will talk to you by the hour in the day about the doctrines of religion and show that they are more conversant with their Bibles than many who talk much of their religious feelings. There are two objections to this practice. The first is that it has the effect of keeping out of view the necessity of a change of heart. The second is that it is a neglect of one effectual means of grace. Religious conversation, in which Christians freely tell of the dealings of God with their own souls, has been often a powerful means of quickening the sluggish soul and communicating comfort. It is in many cases a great consolation to the desponding believer to know that his case is not entirely singular. And if a traveler can meet with one who has been over the difficult parts of the road before him he may surely derive from his experience some salutary counsel and warning. The Scriptures are favorable to such communications. Come and hear, says David, all ye that fear God, and I will declare what he has done for my soul. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord, and that thought upon his name." Paul seldom makes a speech or writes a letter in which he does not freely speak of his own religious joys and sorrows, hopes and fears. There is, no doubt, an abuse of this means of grace, as of others, but this is no argument against its legitimate use, but only teaches that prudence should govern such religious intercourse. The opposite extreme is not uncommon in some denominations, as where professors are publicly called upon and that periodically, for their experience, or where, when professors are met, it is agreed that every one in turn, shall give a narrative of his or her experience in religion. Such practices are not for edification. There are, however, cases in which it may be expedient. It may be delightful for a few select friends to enter into a full detail of the dealings of God with their souls. The writer, in another place, Publish an account of such a conference in Holland, which you received from the late Dr. Livingston of New Brunswick. A company of pious friends having met for religious conversation, the subject which came up was the striking similarity of the experience of God's people in all ages and in all countries, when someone observed that there were present four persons from the four quarters of the world respectively, and who had embraced religion in their native country. One was from the Dutch settlements in the East Indies, a second from the Cape of Good Hope, the third a young nobleman of Holland, and the fourth Dr. Livingston himself from the United States of America. It was then proposed, as an illustration of the subject of conversation, that each should give a narrative of his Christian experience. The company in attendance expressed the highest gratification, and were no doubt greatly edified. It is much to be lamented that many persons who are fond of religious conversation deal so much in cant phrases and assume an air so affected and sanctimonious. This is a thing which disgusts grave and intelligent Christians, and often occasions the wicked to ridicule and blaspheme. Let not your good be evil spoken of. Be not public nor indiscriminate in your communications of this kind. Take heed that you cast not your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, and then turn again and rend you. It is a fact, that what passes for conversion in one sect will be condemned as altogether insufficient in another. A few years since there was what was called a great revival in a Presbyterian congregation in New Jersey. The presiding elder of the Methodist society for that district, having classes of his church mingled with the people of that congregation, so that he had the opportunity of conversing with a number of the subjects of this work, gave it as his opinion to a person who communicated the fact to me, that none with whom he spoke were converted, for he did not meet with one who would say that he knew his sins were pardoned. On the other hand, many of the conversions which take place at camp meetings, and other meetings where there is much excitement, though the subjects do profess to know that their sins are pardoned, are not believed to be cases of sound conversion by Presbyterians, and they are often confirmed in this opinion by the transitory nature of the reformation produced. We have known instances of persons professing conversion at a camp meeting and filling the camp with their rejoicing who relapse into their old habits of sin before reaching their own dwellings. In these strong excitements of the animal sensibilities there is a great danger of deception. When feelings of distress are wound up to a very high pitch, There often occurs a natural reaction in the nervous system by which the bodily sensations are suddenly changed, and this, attended with some text of scripture impressed on the mind, leads a person to believe that he was in that moment converted, when in reality no permanent change has been effected. It is one thing to be persuaded of the truth of the gospel, and quite another to be certain that I have believed that my sins are pardoned. John Wesley was for several years in the ministry and a missionary to America before he had this joyful sense of the forgiveness of sins, and he seems to intimate that until this time he was an unconverted man, and most of his followers make this joyful sense of pardoned sin the principal evidence of conversion, and one which all must experience. Most serious, intelligent readers, however, will be of opinion that Wesley was as humble and sincere a penitent before this joyful experience, and as afterwards, and that it is a dangerous principle to make a man's opinion of his own state the criterion by which to judge of its safety. Certainly we should greater prefer to stand in the place of some broken-hearted contrite ones who can scarcely be induced to entertain a hope respecting their acceptance to that of many who boast that they never feel a doubt of their
1: own safety."